your shelf or mine or mine i'm becky standall youth services librarian at the longview public library i'm angela stevenson from the longview public library i'm joseph govednik with the Cowles county historical museum thank you and welcome joseph to the podcast thank you for inviting me um so we'll just start and have you introduce yourself a little bit and talk about what you do at the museum Sure. My, my name's Joseph, as I mentioned earlier. I'm the director of the Cowlitz County Historical Museum. I've been there for about five and a half years. And the Cowlitz County Historical Museum is a public and private partnership between Cowlitz County and the Cowlitz County Historical Society. And so um, I'm, I'm a county employee of the museum, which is a department within the county. And then the Historical Society is the 501c3 nonprofit that um, employs the staff of the museum and does the fundraising for the exhibits and and programs that we do and it's uh it's been a good partnership uh, it's been like this for um since i think 1975 is when the county had uh the first official uh paid director position for the county museum and i just oversee the uh, overall operations of the museum and uh I guess if you could call it a creative direction or a or or programmatic direction of the museum, uh, there's uh, every day is a little bit different. I guess you would say it can be uh, somebody can just walk in with random objects and pieces of local history, uh, or uh, people come in with ideas of programs that they would like to do or uh, exhibits. Um, a lot of public inquiry regarding oh I bought this old house in Longview and I'd like to get pictures of it and we have over a million images in our image archives and we have about 37 million uh, 37 million would be a lot we have about <laughs> 37,000 physical objects in our collection are any of your collections digitized yes yes we have um, many of the image archives are digitized and of course our, our records of the physical objects not everything is digitized as in a image of the object goes with the file um, sometimes if you look up the file there won't be an image with it but more times than not i'm noticing when i'm looking for objects there will be an image or multiple images of the object with all the data that goes with it are the or is that archive public or is that just for you uh, it, it's available we have um on our website which is at calitzcountyhistory.org which is the Historical Society's website, you can access some of our archives. Not everything is uploaded into the website yet, but uh, every couple months or so, our curator is putting more information out there. Now, if you wanted to look at our entire catalog, you can come and make an appointment with our curator, and uh, we'll turn you loose on a computer, and you can have as much fun as you like uh, going through all the queries. Cool. Thank you. Um, is there any charge to visit the museum or anything like that fortunately not there's no charge it's like going to the library it's free to the public uh we do have a donation jar that or a donation box mm -hmm. that 
people are welcome to put any um, contribution in there if they wish. But it's a free service to our community to have access to the exhibits and to the archives. Uh, we do charge though if you want uh, like an image reproduction uh, to get the digital file we do charge for that but uh, it's uh, open from uh, 10 o'clock in the morning until 4 in the afternoon on Tuesdays through Saturdays and uh, the only times that we're not open during those times is usually during the special occasion like if we're at the county fair doing programming there during the summer or most recently we had some new uh, ex um, new collection storage shelving units put in and we had to close the museum so that the contractors had room to work and make it basically a yeah. big mess of the of the place while they improved our collection storage. So what we call I was room watching that on Facebook. It was very interesting. Oh, awesome. <laughs> I'm glad you saw that. So our our one of our largest storage rooms, which is what we call room ten now, can hold about twice as much material. Wow. Um so you're here today particularly to talk about World War Two and uh the effects of the war Yes, area. I, I think that's what I'm here for. I, it's a topic I'm very intrigued about. I've, as a child, I was always interested in, in World War II and watching the, you know, movies like um, the 1976 version of Midway, for example, or Tora, Tora, Tora. I, I had a particular interest in the Pacific theater as a kid, and I would make model kits of airplanes and use my parents' uh, coffee table as the yes. as the deck of the aircraft carrier and have them take off on it. And so. Um, so that's uh, and of course I have an interest in our local history as well and and there's a lot of tie-ins between uh, what happened locally and nationally uh, in the United States during World War II. It's a so I've always had an interest in World War II history and in particular one thing with World War II is it's one of the last actually probably the last major conflict amongst industrialized nations, uh, world power nations. Um, after World War II, we see more proxy wars or wars between a, a much larger industrialized country and a much smaller country. We've had, um, you know, rationing was going on during World War II. Everybody had to, you know, recycle metal and everybody was into this effort, whereas, say, a difference on the home front for World War II versus, say, the Vietnam War is that our, our life here on the mainland United States was... I mean, not the same, but it was, um, we were able to get food, we could drive, we didn't have mm -hmm. the same restrictions, we didn't have blackout curtains. Uh, so the day-to-day -day life, if you did not turn on the news and you did not see what was going on in, on any of the protests during uh, the Vietnam War, it was you had the full access to resources that you didn't have during World War II. I remember thinking about that like when I was a kid like this was in like early 90s mm -hmm. and knowing in my mind like oh we're like at war in like mm -hmm. Iraq right now but it has no effect on my life mm -hmm. at all compared to like books I was reading and stuff mm -hmm. about kids in other time periods correct we, we got out of a 20-year involvement in Afghanistan mm -hmm. recently and uh, we have had no impact really on our supplies of fuel and food and uh, products that we bought, purchase, electronics. Uh, the th big thing that's really impacted our supply is really a pandemic okay. that has hit us harder than uh, a, a war halfway across the uh, halfway across the world. But uh, back to World War II, though, uh, another big significant thing is a lot of technology came out of there that changed. It's kind of like around here. There's sort of a, a pre 
Mount St. Helens blast mm -hmm. time zone and then the time after the blast. Well, in World War II, there's a lot of what happened before and what happened after as far as you've got um, guided missiles are being used with the V-2 rocket, which helped give birth to the space race. And after the war was over, the Germans uh, had all these scientists that the Americans and the Russians were trying to capture as many of them as they could to use in their space program. Um, radar advancements uh, happened during World War II to the point where they were used to um, start forecasting the weather. And so weather forecast became more predictable. The um, cavity mag magnetron created uh, short microwaves that improved radar technology. These microwaves are what we call our microwave oven. Mm -hmm. So there's a, another technology that became very common. Uh, the use of computers too, rudimentary computers were, or what we would think of as rudimentary mm -hmm. computers were used in uh, during World War II. And ultimately the B-29 Super Fortress, which was probably our most advanced and largest bomber at the time at the end of the war, it had a, a computer system on it to help coordinate the uh, gun turrets that were um, that were operated remotely, um, as well as it had a pressurized cabin, which bombers didn't have back then. So the, the aviators had to suit up in all these really heavy gear that had um, electric wires in them to warm them up. Uh, and on a B-29, it was a pressurized cabin, like if you were on a commercial aircraft nowadays. Um, I can go on and on about some <laughs> other various things. You know, penicillin medicine, you know, that, that penicillin came out in 1928, and that... Uh, changed um, the difference between World War II and World War I uh, casualty rates uh, considerably. So uh, it, it it's a huge moment in 20th century history that still leaves its impact on today, on, on our landscape today, on our uh, geopolitical maps. If you look at it, there's a lot of uh, World War II that you can see mm -hmm. nowadays. Uh, also, the uh, end of uh, colonial empires pretty much started at the end of World War II. Uh, um, India became independent in 1947. Uh, much of Africa became independent states in the 1950s and 60s. So the, the colonial powers started to um, let loose on their, uh, their holdings and uh, many new independent states formed. What was the like sentiment locally, you think, in, in Cowlitz County about the war before the United States entered it? Sentiment? Well, I... I wasn't around at that time, but yeah. I, I, I've, uh, but from what I can understand, though, is uh, the United States as a whole generally wanted to be more isolationist, which we were very internally focused throughout the 19th century on on continental North America, mm -hmm. manifest destiny, and then the Spanish-American War changed that because in 1898 the United States took on possessions that were international possessions like um, the Philippines, for example, and that eventually put us on a collision course with the Japanese 40 years later. Uh, so if you look at um, going back, say, to World War One, which started in July of 1914, the United States didn't get involved until April of 1917. So, uh, you know, you're pushing nearly... Uh, uh, I got my notes wrong. If you go back to World War One, which uh, started in July of 1914 in Europe, the United States held off until 1917, a couple years before they got in, and then were involved for about a year and a half until 
the armistice was signed going forward into World War II, that war was going on for just over two years before the United States was involved. We think of World War II as 1941 to 1945, but most of Europe and, and many places in the world, it's 1939 to 1945, or in the Pacific theater, it happened even before because the Japanese had invaded uh, China and they were in, in the 1930s were earlier in the 30s were in China. So I think there was probably a hesitation and concern about getting involved in a global conflict. We were also fully involved with a, a great American depression that hadn't completely lifted yet. We saw the rises of authoritarian governments throughout the world during the 1930s. Uh, so it was a, kind of a dark and stormy time in the end, though, the war brought us out of the Depression. It, it created a customer, the United mm -hmm. States government, that wanted to purchase the materials for the war effort, and it mobilized an entire country. And so, unfortunately, those trials by fire are, are what sometimes pull us out of dark economic times. Also, uh, you know, the improvements or technological advances that I had mentioned before are usually created during these times of of pressure that a war would would create and so a lot of uh, medical advances uh, even today if you look at what happened in the more recent uh, uh, global war on terrorism and in, in Afghanistan and, and all that we had a much smaller casualty rate as far as people uh, dying in the field because the medical care and the ability to get them out to uh, field hospitals uh, or, or to more advanced uh, medical facilities was available, whereas in the Vietnam War, uh, there's a much higher um, casualty rate as far as deaths. Now, we also have to keep in mind that we're looking at a casualty rate of, of deaths, that that number goes down, but you still have a lot of injuries because many people, they get injured in a battlefield. Mm -hmm. Now, they didn't die, they survived, and they're carrying those injuries for, the, for decades yeah. going forward. What was, I was wondering about both kind of pre-war and into the war, effect on like our port economies here because is that kind of around where like aluminum came to our area that's correct yes uh, we actually have uh, a lot of economy um, of uh, industry here we're, we're known for you know, lumber and and wood products uh, we have two ports here in Callitz County uh, one in Longview one in Kalama and uh the uh, you mentioned aluminum and Reynolds aluminum is what I'm thinking about here, which mm -hmm. went online in September of 1941, just a couple, two three months before we got pulled into that mm -hmm. conflict. And so at the at the, in the late 30s and early 40s, you had a lot of cheap hydroelectric power from the dams that were going up the Columbia, that would um, be able to provide this this electricity for these aluminum reduction plants which consume an enormous amount of energy and so so there was a you know kind of people vying for uh, or companies were vying for locations to to set up along the Columbia River basin and Longview was one of the locations where we have the Reynolds plant uh, aluminum is extremely important particularly when you think about World War II because that was very much an air war in many cases it, it was uh, an air superiority war mm -hmm. I guess we could call it, in that um, in the Pacific where you had large um, naval battles happening, that's where the aircraft carrier really took on as the superseding force beyond a, a battleship 
because of aircraft and aircraft are made out of aluminum and we have Boeing up in Seattle and plants in Renton. Uh, there was also parts that were made in places like uh, Hoquiam and Aberdeen where the uh, tail sections for the B-17 and the B-29 bombers were made. Those are made out of aluminum mm -hmm. and that aluminum, you know, part of it comes from here and, and comes from other aluminum uh, plants around. So, uh, yeah, that's a, a big thing, but the industry, you know, being a area that is very focused on, if, if not uh, a manufacturing or, or wood products or wood extraction or other resources, uh, you have an enormous amount of wood has to be used to ship everything across the ocean. <laughs> because we, when, you, when, I, when I think of, of a war or other people might think of a war, you watch a movie and you think, oh, there are all these people running around in a battlefield and they're shooting at each other or airplanes are flying around and all that. Well, that all has to be made somewhere. It all has to be shipped from somewhere. It has to be shipped in a large ship. Mm -hmm. And you can't just throw it all into onto the hold of a vessel. And so you have, you know, things like I've got here about each soldier required about 300 board feet of lumber to uh, ship their gear to the war and then another 50 feet per month to keep them sustained. Uh, you needed about 20 feet of lumber per ton of cargo for the dunnage to hold it in place. Uh, dunnage being the <laughs> dunnage. What's is, that? <laughs> what's that? <laughs> dunnage is the wood that you used to kind of block and, and push um, in, into position uh, to keep something from rolling around or moving. Mm -hmm. And so um, you need all that lumber to do that about 90 percent of the warehouser lumber went to the war effort wow. so uh it, you know it's a it was a big industry not just to make housing for workers that would work here and uh -huh. at the plants but to just package and ship things we had the pandemic recently and i was just talking with somebody today uh about how packaging is so important because remember when we were trying to buy hand sanitizer at mm. the beginning of the pandemic and well where was it well they were able to make it but they didn't have the plastic containers to, to ship it, it. Into, yeah. so you can have a big vat of it in some factory but you mm -hmm. can't really transport it or do anything with it until you have all the all the jars or containers to put it in so the ability to package is extremely important Fi uh longview fiber uh, made um packaging to ship food cement plaster all kinds of goods they even opened a machine shop to make parts for for the tools of war so to speak because uh, any large mechanical devices if they break and you can't get parts you have to make parts mm -hmm. so it has to be fabricated in-house you can't just go to the store sometimes i found it fascinating when i was looking reading the log of long bell their war years they um they shipped wood everywhere and they shipped these little buildings for people to live in i think it was south america i'd have to double check but they it was across the seas at least like prefab buildings yes oh. that's what they used here too is prefab houses to put people in to work so how did that affect like our our population here because like presumably right m there's men going to war but then mm -hmm. there's also people moving here to work? You had uh, people moving here to work. You had men going to war. You had women taking on roles like Rosie the Riveter in, mm -hmm. in factories and other other places. Uh, women would um, work also in the um, 
in the forest, like in the in the towers that are looking for uh, forest fires, for example, mm-hmm. because you don't want fires to burn down the timber that you need right. to, to build your crates to ship all your stuff off. You have um, also people come in from other areas. And one thing I found interesting looking at old newspapers was the amount of juvenile delinquency that was going on during World War II because you had all these teenagers coming in from, say, the Midwest mm-hmm. to work maybe in farms or other other areas that just needed labor. And the men were gone. The women were in the factories. So these teenagers are here. Their parents are not here because they're out in the war or out in the factories somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So they're living in dormitory-type situations. And, you know, when I was in college and I lived in a dorm as, a, <laughs> as an adult, uh-huh. we had a lot of fun, you know, carrying on and all that well imagine that for high schoolers that are now away from their parents and uh, without the same type of supervision so I was amazed to see how much carrying on there was Mm -hmm. I'll just say it like that Um, you know people uh, a lot of kids like to party a lot (laughs) I guess we could say and then they get in trouble and joyriding and things like that and you see them in the uh, newspaper articles of all the different arrest records and that is really interesting where did they house them? You know, I'm not sure exactly where they housed them. I'm imagining probably in a company building or or uh, some kind of barrack style mm-hmm. place, some place where you have a whole bunch of people using communal communal showers and and uh, facilities and communal um, uh, cafeteria situations. I would think, but I'm not Possibly sure. I didn't read about that part. I didn't read about that part either. Yeah, I'm, I'm just guessing. Right I now. also uh, had a thought. Is there any of those those prefab houses that are still here? Like how? The ones I was talking about were very small. Yeah. They were like um, one. Like a tiny little, home? Little. Not even a home. Yeah. They were just individual like buildings. Almost like a shack. Yeah, interesting. I'd imagine they probably were not built to last. Yeah, Yeah. okay. Put them up and take them down. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, um, also, you know, we we mentioned a little bit about the timber industry Mm -hmm. and aluminum, and I just briefly touched on the ports. One thing that is interesting with the port of Longview is uh, we had a a lot of uh, material come out of there that went to Russia, actually. In fact, about... 50,000 flat cars of components were shipped to Russia, which ultimately were used to build three oil refining facilities. And uh, there's an image that we have in our archives of a Russian uh, merchant vessel. And it, and it was taken right after the war, but it was still armed. So you can see the, the uh, armaments on the, on the stern wow. of this vessel. And it says CCCP on the side of it very prominently. And it's there loading up material. Um, after the war, but uh, we had these Russian vessels coming in to pick up all these supplies. The Port of Kalama leased space to um, a Seattle salvage, a salvage company that took the superstructure off of a Spanish-American warship, the USS Olympia, which was a battleship. It was made in, I believe it was in 1893, and they salvaged the metal off the superstructure and then they used the whole of the vessel to be an ammunition barge which if i recall correctly i I think sank when it was in tow in 1942 or thereabouts i i need to confirm that it might have been later but i believe that they uh, used it to transport ammunition to guam possibly 
I don't have my notes in front yeah. of me for that one. <laughs> but I do know that it sank in tow. Oh, yeah. Could you talk more about rationing? Sure. What? So, yeah, what was rationed? Well, let's see. Um, rubber. We had rubber. We had uh, gasoline. We had sugar, chocolate, alcohol, I believe pork, um, all kinds of, I mean, almost everything was rationed. And so this is something that affects day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. We had a 35 mile per hour national um, speed limit to preserve the rubber from the tires for cars. 35. Because if you had a car and <laughs> don't, don't expect that you're going to be able to get new <laughs> tires for your car during the war. Uh, one of the other issues with rubber too, is that it affected um, shoes. You had a hard time getting my mom when she was a little kid they had a, a ration card and were able to get shoes for her and she didn't like them she threw them in the toilet and my grandma was very upset with her that she did that but my mom said i don't like the color of these shoes well you don't do that during a war yeah so <laughs> you don't you, get those choice. are the shoes you have those are the shoes that you get that's yeah. your choice this is the color you get a choice of of off-white or off-white that's your choice <laughs> just like a ford model t okay. your choice is black or black so uh so those were um rationed and and it, it was also noted that uh if you were like a dairy farmer you need rubber boots when you're out there in all the mud working with your cattle mm-hmm. and they couldn't necessarily have rubber boots oh. so you would just have to slog through it with whatever yeah. you had uh, the rationing didn't end by the way when the war ended just like supply chain issues didn't just end when when our COVID pandemic seems to have gotten under control. Uh, there's rationing that was going on well into you know 1946 uh, because you know everything has to take time to catch up. My dad remembers um, he was born in 1934, and so after the war, he remembers seeing cars driving around that were missing a bumper or a fender because they'd come off the assembly line in 1946 not completely complete but you know you could drive it on the road but you know your last model year for a car would be you know 1941 unless they had the night unless the 42s are out by december that might have been the Mm -hmm. case i don't know if they jumped on the gun that quickly back then like they do now where the next year's models seem to be a year in advance but uh you didn't see anything until 1946 model it's kind of like cars just sitting waiting for the chips now Mm -hmm. they're so backed up on the because now you need a chip. You, Computer whereas, chips. Yeah, if it was just a bumper, chip you could still drive around. But yeah. <laughs> you know, those old, old cars, they were all, everything was mechanical yeah. versus uh, the, the computer that's needed to tell, you, tell it what to do. Mm-hmm. And so there's something to think about there when it comes to <laughs> some technology. It's, it's like the photocopier in the, uh, in the workroom at the office. You know, when it's working great, it's just wonderful. Yeah, it's it's collating. It's printing both sides. It's doing multicolor. And then when it doesn't work right, and when you're in a hurry, it's just terrible. <laughs> so would Longview have seen, like, drives for things, collecting? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, they would have done um, drives for, um, oh, they collected fat, um, like uh, grease and fat from like cooking. Kitchen? Yeah, the kitchen oil, um, kitchen drippings, I guess, uh, uh, tin, uh, rubber, what yeah. did they use the kitchen fats for? I'm trying to recall what it was used for, but it was very important to have it for something. And I'm not sure if it was used in explosives or something. I, 
I, or I some know kind of lubricant. Gosh, I, think, yeah. I feel like I remember learning somewhere on a podcast or something that they used like animal fats and car lubricants until like the 60s or 70s. That could be, yeah. They or maybe it was whale that I was thinking. Anyways. I don't know. <laughs> or they would use um, like Weyerhaeuser had a bleached sulfite pulp that they could extract to create one of the components for smokeless powder which is modern gunpowder mm. so that was something that they did I, I don't think people were necessarily recycling their bleached sulfite pulp but <laughs> but the uh, but yeah the fat could be used for as a grease mm -hmm. or um or some other use i'm sure but why pour it down the drain if you yeah. could Get use it for grease. something else yeah so it you know everyone had to had to pull in they had to have you know the blackout curtains and you know the air wardens um, were, you know, people that were watching out for air, enemy aircraft, noting aircraft that were flying around. Because at the time, you know, we didn't really realize what the capacity was for the Japanese if they could actually invade the West Coast or or if they could bomb the West Coast. Mm -hmm. There was an invasion on the Aleutian Islands in in Alaska, uh, but that was, um, you know, very far away. But uh, it was always a concern. So we have um, large gun emplacements along many West Coast um, areas. Uh, some uh, places in California I've seen and in Oregon where there's gun emplacements because they thought that there could be an enemy coming. But it, the war did not turn well for the Japanese fairly quickly after uh, Pearl Harbor. The Japanese were in a, in a very favorable position for about six months and then... Once the Battle of Midway happened uh, in the um, late fall, early summer of uh, 1942, uh, about six months later, uh, it, there was a retreating war for them, for the end uh, of war of attrition for them for the next three years. And likewise with what happened in, in Europe too, the, the Germans had so much control over the continent in 1942, the, the extent of their expansion was at its height around 1942. And then everything started to contract because they, they spread themselves yeah, too thin and, and made too many enemies on every front. You know, you, you're fighting on the west and the north and the south and the east, and you, you're just not going to be able to hold on that long if that's, that's your method of strategy. Could you speak a little bit about, like, Japanese internment in our area after Pearl Harbor? Sure, yes. The... Uh, so the executive order 9066 was issued after Pearl Harbor and about 120,000 Americans of Japanese heritage were were on the west coast at the time and uh, were interned, uh, meaning that they were um, ordered to leave their homes and go to an internment camp that was further inland. And the, there's various uh, reasons why the federal government or the president wanted to do that. Part of it was concerns over any you know, saboteurs on the West Coast, things like that. But they also, they told people that uh, were being interned that it was for their own protection so that mm -hmm. people wouldn't harm them. And so, but one way or the other, people were forced out of their homes, out of their businesses, lost property in this, in this matter, our American citizens that uh, were detained. And this also did happen to some German and, and Italian Americans too, uh, but the Japanese American internment was uh, definitely a, um, a more extensive 
and uh, very well documented uh, circumstance. So the uh, my understanding is that the Japanese Americans that were in Longview ended up in Tule Lake, California, and they were mm-hmm. taken to the Kelso Depot and and uh, by train taken there. Uh, so um, before World War II, the Long Bell Lumber Company had uh, several um, people of Japanese descent that worked there. There was a um, uh, about uh, in the 1929 roster shows about 37 people of Japanese heritage that uh, that lived in what was called Lil Tokyo. It's L I apostrophe L Tokyo. Sometimes it was called Japanese Camp. Sometimes it was called Jap Town, and that was on um, near Industrial Way, near the main gate of Long Bell Lumber. And um, the interesting thing is, the the thirty seven people on this um, roster, they all used the same phone number and address as the contact point, mm-hmm. and so they everything kind of filtered through one mm-hmm. person as far as if they had to contact them. And those thirty seven people represented about a hundred citizens that lived in that, that, that neighborhood of, of little Tokyo. And, um, there's, uh, images we have in our archives of a float on Lake Sacagawea that says the Japanese community. And it was an entrance into a float, um, in a, in a festival, uh, that was on the lake. Um, but unfortunately they, they were all taken away and, and sent to the internment camps. And you said that they were sent to um, Tule uh, Lake? Lake. Last summer, um, I was in Wyoming, and we visited the museum at Heart Mountain, which I'd recommend if you're ever mm-hmm. in that area. Mm-hmm. Do you know if any of those families have came back afterwards? They did. Um, Mayada family had a laundry in Kelso, in Kelso and they came back. Uh, several of them did come back. And, you know, the unfortunate thing, too, is many of them, while their families were interned, fought for the United States mm-hmm. in the 442nd and the 100th uh, Army regiments uh, for the United States in, in the European theater and, and then to come back to internment afterwards mm-hmm. would be uh, just a very uh, difficult thing to do to fight for your country than to be okay. segregated mm-hmm. like that. Um, the the other thing is we have a a record that I I received from our previous sheriff that has an inventory list of things that were confiscated, oh, wow. and so the inventory included things like flashlights, radios, firearms, cameras, and binoculars. These are all the items that could be used for espionage mm-hmm. or signaling or for fighting. So there was a before everybody was. It took several months to. The internment didn't happen immediately in mm-hmm. December of 41. It, the, this happened in uh, June 3rd of 1942 is when everybody was was deported out through the uh, Kelso Depot. So during those months, they were still living here, but knew that this was going to be happening. And so this confiscation happened uh, of, of property that, that was deemed to be of a concern. Mm. So um, the, the other thing I found out, too, is uh, that... You know, when I used to think of the internment when I was a kid that, oh, they just, you know, took all these people and put them into an internment camp. Well, those internment camps did not exist when the executive right. order came out. I talked to a, a Japanese-American who was a veteran who served in the 442nd, and he said that, it, this is down in California, and he said, oh, yeah, we were sent to um, 
Fremont first in Fremont, California, mm-hmm. in the Bay Area. I said, I thought you went, you said you went to an internment camp. They, there was no internment camps in Fremont. And he says, no, they took us down to the fairgrounds there. Mm-hmm. And uh, they kept us there for a while because they had to build the internment camp further inland. So there was, it was like a temporary staging area. So I think a lot of fairgrounds were used in many areas. Um, I'm trying to recall if our own county fairgrounds may have played a role. I know the Puyallup fairgrounds were used mm-hmm. yeah, up north. That's a big one. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know anything about like um, the, the families that returned, like if they were able to recover any of their lost property? I think in some cases they could recover mm-hmm. their property. In other cases it was gone. Um, there's not specific to this area, but I've heard of situations where this is one of the, I guess the, the better part of humanity is there was two farms, a, a white American farm and a, and a Japanese American farm. And uh, the Japanese Americans were interned. And I had heard that the, the white family operated the Japanese American farm during the war, used the land to produce food and all that. And then after the war, the Japanese family came back and had their land back to continue to build their life back. Unfortunately, that's probably not how it happened in in many cases. I'd imagine that a lot of times the the land was seized or taken over or or somehow the, you know, I guess I would imagine the banks probably would have taken a lot of the land if a mortgage wasn't being paid. Mm -hmm. That's probably how that would happen is it is not being productive somebody's not paying the taxes they're not paying the mortgage and then the bank takes it and sold at auction or something like that would happen as a mechanism but one way or the other it's gone Mm -hmm. so you know think about working for your life or for even generations from one generation to another and your third generation Mm -hmm. here in the united states and then all of a sudden it's all gone do you have any photos in your collection about the the deportation at the train station i wonder to if there's my, anything in the paper yeah too. to my knowledge i don't have i don't think we have any pictures we have pictures of little tokyo mm-hmm. in our collection many pictures of houses and uh-huh. and even you could see the the long bell building in the background of one of the images which helps mm-hmm. set Place, the location yeah. uh, but i'm curious where those images would be if yeah. if it was documented how it was documented because uh, if there was no cameras there to take those mm-hmm. pictures and the people that were being deported probably didn't have cameras because they were taken, taken away, away. Yeah. so yeah. if there's uh, it's just you know written stories and oral stories mm-hmm. that might be part of that but that would be interesting to look through if the Daily News archives have anything, particularly if you look mm-hmm. at, what was that, the 3rd of, um, yeah, so June 3rd, uh, somewhere around the Daily News from June 3rd or the week after might have some information on that, or at least an article about mm-hmm. it, if not yeah. a photograph. The Century Club, it's a women's club. Uh-huh. They may they met every week and or monthly. I think it was every week, though and talked about books and learning. Um, but during the war, uh, raised money for the Red Cross, and they made ditty bags mm. to help with the war. What's that? Ditty bags? Yeah. They hold stuff for people who are injured in the war, so they would go to people oh, who are in the home. Okay, um, like bandages hospitals. and stuff like that? Yeah. Oh. Do you know any any stories or anything about the um, 
local people who served in the military in the war. You mentioned Not, a couple of yeah. Japanese. Let's see here. So um, I don't have a whole lot as far as any individual stories off the top of my head. I do have an item in my collection of a, a personal collection item. It was a, uh, it's a Japanese rifle that was picked up on Guadalcanal by an American from Longview. And I had the person write, uh, the, well, not, not the person who collected it, but the, the uh, nephew of the person who collected it wrote me a narrative that, to the best of his recollection, that his uncle was a CB and picked it up when he was in Guadalcanal. And I thought part of the reason why I brought it into my own collection was that it was, uh, had a local story to it. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's one story. Uh, there's, of course, you know, stories you can read about in the archives of the paper or if anybody knows any veterans that are still around. And I, I do know of a couple that are, are still around that on, on, other, on not just the United States side, but other sides uh, during the conflict um, that are, un- un- unfortunately, you know, we're losing that generation very rapidly. And uh, my, my grandfather was part of that generation. And I got as many stories from him as I could. And he was in the uh, Army Air Corps at the time and was in the Pacific Theater. But, um, but you know, I think most of it we're going to have to read about now. Yeah. Because you're referring to your great-grandparents mm-hmm. as being in that conflict. And I'm talking about my grandparents being in that conflict. And it becomes further and further removed with each generation. Mm-hmm. My grandfather was in the, um, he was in France. He was in the army and mm-hmm. he built bridges mm-hmm. and bombed the bridges. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was going through the warehouser log, I found it mentioned that he w- when he went over to um, France. Mm-hmm. So they published like the employees? Mm-hmm. They published all the employees when they went over and the log of Longbell did too. And they sent the log of Longbell to any soldiers who were over in the war. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And they published letters in the Log of Long Bell. There'll be little letters oh. from people that were over in the war. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we just uh, had heard this story from a coworker of ours, Austin, whose grandfather's uh, uncle uh, was killed in the war. And his name was um, Hollis Martin. And we have that uh, memorial in um, Ari Long Park. And his name is up there. Um and that was like an interesting story, I guess. He said that he remembers as a kid his, his grandpa telling him, but he, you know, he didn't know him. And it seemed like some of the family kind of had conflicting stories, but he ended up doing some research about it in the National Archive. Um, and he was captured as a prisoner of war in the Philippines where he'd been stationed and was a Japanese prisoner of war for a number of years. And then he was on board one of their house ships, the Arzin Maru, when it was sunk by American Torpedo in 1944. Um, and his information, he'd found that um, only nine of the POWs survived out of over 1,700 that were on that ship, not because the ship was tormed- torpedoed, but because afterwards the Japanese refused to rescue them out of the waters. Mm-hmm. And he says he, he thought his grandfather had that letter that they received from the government. Mm-hmm. I don't know where it is now. Yeah, we were um, torpedoing any any ship that looked like a merchant vessel, and those 
ships that appeared like merchant vessels could also have had POWs on board, and we wouldn't know until after they went down. And that's, uh, you know, there's a lot of difficult things happened, terrible things happened during World War II in both the European and Pacific theaters. But um, the Pacific theater, too, had a, an additional difficulty, too, being that it was, a lot of it was in the tropics. And my grandfather, who was stationed in the Pacific, he was sick a lot of the time. One, I asked him for all these stories. How many, yeah. how many sorties did you go on, Grandpa? Tell us about what you did. And he said, I actually didn't fly as much as you think because I was in a hospital a lot of the time. And at the end of the war, some of, some people thought he was in a POW camp because he had lost so much weight. Oh. He'd just, you know, just been sick with all the diseases that are out there in the jungle. And... Uh, and that's the other thing with um, warfare is we think often as you know soldiers out in the battlefield fighting and all mm-hmm. that. And I had mentioned earlier, there's all these supplies that have to go there. You know, it's probably ninety percent of the personnel power to have a war is the the people that are in the rear with the Give gear, and then the other ten yeah. percent are in the on the battlefield. Well, the other thing that you're battling too is illness. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm reading a book about the American Revolution right now and constantly they're talking about how sick all the soldiers are how hungry they are how cold they are and how sick they are oh and they got to fight too on top of all that and so that there's oh and desertions too during the revolutionary war a lot of desertions so it it's not as um coherent of a operation as as you might think that the that the hollywood uh movie makers make it look like right gosh i read a, a graphic novel once and it was about disease on the war front. It was very graphic on like the illness. And I don't remember which 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 disease it was. Um, but yeah, it was really interesting. Do you know about like other people who served since like not like soldiers, but in other capacities, like as nurses or um, like support? Um, not any you know, necessarily mm-hmm. personal stories locally. Uh, my grandmother was a nurse and that's yeah. how she met grandpa oh really <laughs> so he was i think recovering from something uh-huh. and she was there and and lo and behold uh actually no i'm sorry uh she was a nurse but this was before the war they met because my mother this is actually i find kind of interesting my mother was born in 1942 in september and my aunt was born a year or so before that I started doing the math and I started thinking about it. Like September 1942, Grandpa was in the war. My Uncle Tom was born in 1946. Oh, so Pearl Harbor happens in December of 41. It takes some time for mobilization and for Grandpa to ship out. Grandma then is pregnant with my mother sometime around December, early January. And my mother comes around in September in 42, and then there's no uncles and aunts born yeah. for about a three-year period or so. And then my Uncle Tom is born in um, in 1946, and then uh, three more aunts and uncles were born after that. So the if you look at the war, you'll see these, um, gap. these gaps or baby booms, mm-hmm. baby busts. There's been some talk about even with the pandemic, there might be a baby boom or a, a large number of kids being born as people were you know, uh, sent to quarters, so to speak, for <laughs> for a while during the pandemic. Yeah. So uh, you'll see these trends that happen. I was born in 1974. That was a baby bust year. 
I remember in high school looking in the bleachers during a pep rally and see the classes ahead of me and the classes behind me and they were all bigger they, they we were on the bottom of the curve yeah. we're the smallest smallest group maybe it's all the it took a while for all the the hippie generation to kind of figure <laughs> out what they were doing in the early 70s and and then uh, they became more stabilized as yuppies in the 80s and had more kids that makes me think when you were talking about like juvenile delinquents too i think um i'd heard something about like different crime rates having to do with just the amount of like young men there were at certain periods of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you're like talking about like, Oh, crime rates nationally are going down. It's just, there's like fewer people that age where people tend to be committing mm-hmm. crimes, mm-hmm. which is like men usually in their late teens and early twenties. Yeah. Men. Yeah. Men are generally the ones that are <laughs> doing that. And, uh, and you have to look at, you know, poverty rate, unemployment, mm-hmm. uh, you know, things like that you know if you're employed and you're out of poverty you're probably less inclined to have idle time to or or desperation Mm -hmm. to do activities that might lend you into the wrong side of the law but that's a very important to look at the the these crime rates and how many young men are are there uh that do that because uh you know women commit crimes too they definitely do that as well (laughs) but uh there is some there's a a uniqueness with human nature and and with male um young males Mm -hmm. and if you look at uh i'll just look at how we drive cars i think about how i drove a car when i was younger and car insurance is always more for those uh, males that are Mm -hmm. 16 to 24 thereabouts Um, and i and the way I drove then is a lot different than how I drive now. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I might be more distracted now, but but uh, but I was definitely more of a speed demon mm-hmm. back back in those earlier days. We didn't touch on the war bonds. They did um, war bonds and war loans a lot in Longview. I think through the whole United mm-hmm. States, but they definitely did several of them too there's yeah. i think six or seven efforts or drives because they'll say you know purchase your war bonds for the sixth or the fifth uh, war loan yeah. and um we have cause, scrapbooks because you have to purchase all yeah you have to purchase all this stuff that you're making and mm-hmm. you have to pay people that are working in a factory if you don't mm-hmm. pay them they're not going to work i mean there's a certain amount of loyalty and patriotism to get things done but there's also a need to um, we are an economy that requires cash to buy goods and services and, and pay for things. Long Bell actually offered it wasn't mandatory, but it was highly encouraged. <laughs> they would actually dock your wages straight from them and you could and it would go straight to the war effort. Oh, yeah, it was voluntary, but mm-hmm. yeah, um, like as a donation or as like a bond, a bond. So what were some long-term effects um, of the war in our area? I mean, na- nationwide, you know, you see a lot more suburb growth mm-hmm. happening. Gasoline became more accessible and more affordable, and therefore more cars are driving around. And uh, in the 1950s, people started getting their second cars. The GI Bill offered um, money for housing to, to purchase a house. Uh, one thing that World War II also brought in was um, kind of a, a baseline of medical care in some regards, if you want to look at it that way, in that in order for people to go into the U.S. Army, they all had to have a physical exam. Mm-hmm. And so there was a requirement, you know, they had to see a dentist, they saw a doctor. I believe that you had to have at least half of your teeth 
to go into the army. And so that was kind of the beginning of this, you know, dental care becoming more um, advanced, more common. There's um, a rise in service in community clubs. You have some other changes too that happened after the war uh, is a shortage of housing. Um, I'm reading in some post-war daily news articles about this constant shortage of housing. We need more housing. We need more workers. And it's kind of like, gosh, have I heard this before recently? Like, <laughs> do we need more people to work? Uh, are we having an employment shortage? Are we having a shortage of housing? And it's kind of like history's yeah. rhyming again, uh, which I found um, intriguing to, to read those old articles. And it's like, oh, I think I could have seen this in yesterday's paper mm -hmm. almost. We're having a, sh a housing crisis. Uh, there's... Um, because you know, so many people were migrating back, television became available um, not long afterwards. In fact, the longest running show on TV uh, came out in 1947, Meet the Press. Mm. It's still been, still airs today. Uh, the use of um, purchasing at chain stores started to become more common, and the mom and pop little markets, there's a lot more small mom and pop grocery markets mm -hmm. getting um, pushed out by larger chain stores. So you, you see a lot of that happening as, as we become more of a car culture after the war into the 50s, uh, a suburb culture relying on the, these cars. And then you start to see the disintegration in some of the city centers because people aren't living there. And a lot of the, you know, a lot of cities had trolley systems and yeah. tracks everywhere for these trolleys, and then they just ripped them all out. Mm -hmm. Cause why, why would we do that? Why would Los Angeles have <laughs> you know, a trolley system? Because everyone's got a car now. And so there's very few places where you'll find that. And, uh, you know, you, you do still have those uh, cable cars in San Francisco, but there's not many other places you're going to find a trolley system around. And there's light rail now that they've been putting mm -hmm. back in, but uh, we should have kept, in my opinion, we should yeah. have kept our, our rail systems in the, in, in the cities uh, the whole time because I, I love taking trains. I Personally, I, I don't particularly like to drive. I'd rather let somebody else drive. And if I could sit on a train and read a book, I'll do that. So you were talking about like a housing shortage. Mm -hmm. Did we have more like developments and stuff built then after like in the 50s? Do you see that pick up? Well, like a lot of the s schools ended up being built. We had to build more schools uh -huh. locally. And um, if you look at maps of Longview from, say, the 40s or, or 50s, and I, th I think if you look at even the old west side, even today, you'll find actually a mix of architecture in there. Mm -hmm. You'll see, yeah. you, you think of the old west side as, oh, all these houses were built in the 20s. Mm -hmm. Well, how come there's a mid-century modern house right <laughs> in this lot <laughs> next to this older house? There was a lot of vacant lots still. So they were building more up on these vacant lots because not everything was sold by then. Because think about how um, Longview you know, created in 1923 and then the stock market crash in 1929 and that negatively affects the economy here. Uh, that's, you know, six years of, you know, things are moving along, but then there's this crash. And so I, I I'm believing that uh, in the 1940s, after everyone comes back from the war, after, you know, three and a half years of war and 10 years of depression, uh, yet, you know, that's a sizable chunk of time where there is a slower development, a slower consumption of land. So uh, you see these uh, lots getting built up in 
places like the old west side but um i'm not too knowledgeable actually on any you know necessarily some of the post-war tracts of land i know that like in the west side mm-hmm. of longview you see some more developments going on out out that way um, but uh, as far as your suburb type development that you might like los angeles style yeah. suburb 1950s um i don't think we had that happen here because there was still land that was centrally like located in town that was in inter- yeah. yeah do you have any final thoughts or things to add oh gosh uh <laughs> final thoughts um the world before world war ii in in the united states i think is a different world than mm-hmm. post world war ii we we were in a jet age and an atomic age afterwards and uh, the space race was going to happen soon i mentioned the v2 rocket as a guided missile that the germans had and uh, our mercury redstone rocket which we launched our first um, mercury capsules up in 1961 our first american in space that based off of technology from these v2 rockets that it was then you know enhanced of course after you know 15 years or so of development but we owe a lot to to that type of technology Air, air travel too changed um, I mean civilian air travel changed considerably too after World War II uh, because um, you had uh, you know once you had these jet engines uh, you know jet uh, civil aviation could happen and in uh, the ni- late 1950s we have commercial jet aviation mm-hmm. becoming pretty available and uh, and even with that the uh, I'll, I'll just take the Boeing 707 as an example, as an aircraft that is from the the mid to late 1950s. Uh, we still fly aircraft today called the 737, which is yeah. the workhorse of America, and it is based on the same fuselage and has the same nose cone design. I mean, the avionics are different, but it is you're on a 707 in many <laughs> regards, and uh, we're still using them today, and we're still manufacturing them. So. So that's some uh, some things I look at, and and the fact that you know military wise, the the greatest navies in the world have aircraft carriers. Mm-hmm. The United States has, I believe, eleven aircraft carriers in its fleet, and that those are the primary. Um, you know, whenever there's a, a a crisis in the world, we move an aircraft carrier yeah. fleet into that area, and you've got a platform where you can launch seventy five aircraft mm-hmm. if you have to. And, and one U.S. aircraft carrier has more aircraft than most third world nations have in their entire air force. I mean, air forces are expensive to maintain, and mm-hmm. and we have you know the equivalent of a nation's air force and then some on just yeah. one of our vessels. So it, it's a neat um, way to look at how that technology kind of still impacts us. Like I mentioned, the microwaves that you just yeah. you know hit their beep 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 and your food's ready. It's um, and, oh and socially too. Uh, one other final thought is the after world war ii is that that's also giving rise to the civil rights movement in the Mm -hmm. 50s and the 60s Uh, you have um, a lot of social change because um, people are coming back from the war and uh, people are becoming a little bit more integrated and the korean war is the first war that the united states fought in 1950 when we got involved that was an integrated war before korea we had um, s- racially segregated units. Uh, so World War II was a segregated war, but the Korean War was an integrated war where uh, we, our, our society started to um, 
to change. And um, even my, my dad, who was in the in the Navy during the Korean War, in his boot camp pictures, there's mm-hmm. uh, people of different ethnic backgrounds in it that you wouldn't have seen in the boot camp picture from World War II. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking Thanks. with us. Thanks for inviting me here. And uh, we just really appreciate you being part of our, our centennial series. Do you guys have anything coming up at the museum that in particular celebrates Longview Centennial? We sure do. We have um, an exhibit coming up called 1923, the year that changed Cowlitz County history. A large portion of it will be about, of course, Longview Centennial. And uh, we have a few other things that happened. Also, the the change of the uh, county seat happened in 1923 mm-hmm. from Kalama to Kelso. The Allen Street Bridge collapse, uh, which... As a lot of, although it was in Kelso, it has a Longview connection because mm-hmm. it was the workers that were building Longview that were on that bridge that mm-hmm. collapsed. The uh, Pacific Highway was completed. Uh, so 1923 is really a fascinating year in many different rights. But uh, definitely this spring we are opening 1923, the year that changed Cowles County history. And there will be many panels on that display and many artifacts that are Longview oriented. Very cool. I look forward to that. Me too. Well, thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening to your show. Or mine. Or mine. I'm Becky. I'm Angela. I'm Joseph. Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Support for Your Shelf or Mine comes from the friends of the Longview Public Library, the Longview Library Foundation, and listeners like you. Your Shelf or Mine jingle is written and performed by Megan McKeldery from A Song for You. Find Megan online at ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldery. That's M-E-A-G-H-A-N-M-C-E-L-D-E-R-R-Y. ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldery.